This is hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Turkey's government has joined with fascist forces to crack down on dissent, including taking steps toward dissolving the largest true opposition party in the country, rounding up all those who speak out about the government online, making it illegal for anyone within the opposition to ever be involved in politics again, and in the middle of the night not only withdrew from the international fight against domestic violence, particularly against women and kids, changing the central bank governor and economic direction toward one that will likely be devastating the economy and taking control of a park where historic protests by the opposition have taken place. And how has the West reacted to that, you know, that bastion of democracy and stalwart against fascism? How has the West reacted to these moves in Turkey? By German Chancellor Angela Merkel and U.S. President Joe Biden putting pressure on the EU to not impose further sanctions on Turkey as they view their participation within NATO far more important than whether they happen to be fascists involved in stopping mass protests by their citizens and shit man the end of all dissent in a few minutes we'll find out exactly what is happening in Turkey and why the West doesn't seem to give a damn about it and what a truly anti-fascist movement in Turkey might mean not only for the fight against fascism within Turkey, but for anti-fascism worldwide when we have the return of freelance journalist and translator Max Zerngast, who co-wrote the Jacobin article, Turkey is trying to ban the socialist pro-Kurdish HDP, which he co-authored with Alp Kaiser Ili Olyu and Junia Kara. Max is an independent writer studying philosophy and political science in Vienna and Ankara. This is Max's seventh appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to 2016. Max was on the show most recently in October of 2019 to talk about his then-just-posted Jacobin article, Turkey's War in Syria is a War for Fascism, which apparently turns out to be the case. You can find out... Find all of our conversations with Max at thisishell.com when you search on Zerngast, Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. And you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Zerngast. Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash thisishell. And uh, tell you what's happening next week on the show. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your week? Uh, lost another one to the pandemic. What's that? My barber shop. Oh. The crumbling place that smelled like cigarettes. Um, I helped the old Belarusian barber uh, install his TV so we could watch Fox News every time I got my hair cut. And he would give me the most insane parenting, Russian parenting advice that uh, I would take home and not use. And uh, the place is closed. All those moments gone, like tears in the rain. Time to find another barber. You... Oh, it's like two blocks from my house. Dude. Is that the, that, that's not the same barber. That's not the Auschwitz survivor. No. Uh, earlier, when I that first... place went under, and yeah. that's now a new taco stand. Yes. Uh, earlier, I got I was maybe like four or five years ago. I went to a barber out of nowhere, just in my neighborhood, and uh, it turned out he was an Auschwitz survivor, and just told me these incredible stories of sort of like uh, learning to cut hair in concentration in the concentration camp, uh, and then what his life was like. Uh, after liberation and then moving to America and uh, it was really, really powerful moment and uh, also the worst haircut I've ever had in my <laughs> life because he was like 95 years old. 
Oh, what was his name? It's driving me crazy now because I just saw a whole bunch of people writing about how they would go, because the taco stand opening, about how they would go in there and he would tell them what Auschwitz was like when they were getting their hair cut. Wow, my week has been difficult, but I cannot thank you enough, Alex, for making it far easier than it might have been. It was tough getting back in here to face the daily hell of what we cover here on the show while I was struggling with my own personal hell of my brother passing away a few weeks ago. So thank you, Alex, and thanks to all the listeners who sent their condolences, offered their support, and told me to take all the time I need. Your incredible support has really helped a lot. So thanks to Alex and all of you. More importantly, Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? Uh, This week's question from hell is, so what's the name of your podcast? What's the name of your podcast? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com, click on support, and select which piece of merchandise you want. And if you are the winner of this week's question from hell, you get that piece of This Is Hell swag. We've got t-shirts, tote bags, winter caps, trucker hats, uh, coffee mugs, flash drives, all sorts of stuff. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all of our merchandise. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer in by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Jeff Dorchin is not going to be able to join us this week or next week as he has a prior commitment. (laughs) Let's put it that way for right now. He's in the middle of uh, some legal action with a very large corporation. So we'll be finding out what that's all about in a few weeks. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon. Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and his podcast shortly after at the same place. On tomorrow's Patreon podcast, it's another edition of This Week in Hell. When I give my review of what the hell happened during this week's episodes of This Is Hell, it's likely not what you got out of This Is Hell. It's likely not the most important stuff you could get out of This Is Hell. And I'm likely not noticing something that was probably incredibly important that you noticed and I didn't. So it's my week in hell, and I would not be so presumptuous to assume my week in hell in any way lines up with your week in hell. For me, this week was all about the U.S. foreign policy of protecting U.S. business interests like slavery, the purposeful destruction of families and culture, the devastating force of imperialism, and whatever I learned from Max Zerngas today on Turkey. But I'm betting it's going to be about how the West and neoliberalism tolerate fascism far too much. We'll also be sharing our interview from, uh, let's see, from April Fool's Day 15 years ago when we spoke with sociologist Michael Schwartz, author of Radical Protest and Social Structure and Social Policy and the Conservative Agenda. Michael had just posted an article titled, Does the Media Have It Right on the War? On how the media was getting it so wrong in their coverage and analysis of the Iraq War. For instance, the established media take on the war, which was not going well in the spring of 2006, was if the U.S. had only just sent in 700,000 troops to begin with, that overwhelming force would have undermined any chance at any insurgency, making the whole war not having any problems whatsoever, not being problematic in any way. Of course, what that perspective gets wrong is it does not consider the U.S. plan to neoliberalize Iraq, which was at the heart of the problem with the war in Iraq. But you can only hear all that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which again streams live every Friday, 10 a.m. Chicago time, podcast at the same place shortly after. 
We got a guest suggestion to us at Chuck at this is hell.com this week from Sebastian. And it's on a topic that we have never discussed on the show. And it's, it's just the kind of thing that we love to discuss on the show because it's not what anybody else is discussing and it has a lot to do with just the bigger picture. Here's what Sebastian writes. Chuck, with the amount of people you featured from The Baffler, this might be a case of carrying owls to Athens. I love that phrase. But I just wanted to make sure you read this. I just came across this piece on The Baffler. This sounds like it could make a good episode of the author, interview with the author, can be asked for an interview. The article talks about an investment company that mass buys the rights to old hit songs and then treats them as well investments and thus has a vested interest in preventing anything new from happening in pop music. Thanks for all the hell. Keep fighting the good fight, etc. Sebastian. Sebastian then includes a link to an article at The Baffler by Rich Woodall entitled Mass Hypnosis. A new crop of investors would like you to keep vanilla ice on infinite repeat, which sounds... Awful. Now, that's mass hypnosis spelled H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S. And Woodall writes, I first heard about hypnosis from a pal of mine who spent a long afternoon late last year being chased around the Internet by Miley Cyrus. Specifically, her cover of Blondie's Heart of Glass. He laughed it off at first, but as Miley returned for the third, fourth, and fifth go-round on YouTube's Next Up, he began to feel like the joke was on him when ads for the song appeared on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. The amusement gave way to panic. It seemed that no matter where he fled, Miley would follow him. My friend swears there was nothing in his browsing history that could account for this bizarre affliction. So what was going on? Some kind of glitch in the algorithm? Once he had... Uh, regathered his wits, a little frantic googling yielded an intriguing discovery. The rights to Heart of Glass, as well as the other 196 songs in Blondie's oeuvre, had just been purchased by an organization calling itself Hypnosis Songs Fund Limited. Coincidence? Well, as Blondie told us back in 1979, accidents never happen in a perfect world. Woodall concludes hypnosis is run by avaricious disaster capitalists and that while hypnosis deserves credit due credit for showing us one of our possible futures a world of absolute cultural necrophagy as in the eating of dead or decaying animal flesh where listeners and investors gorge themselves endlessly on the bloated carcasses of love shack and living on a prayer in so doing they have clarified the task that lies ahead of us to find ways to create and share the songs we need that support and nourish the lives of the musicians performers writers and technicians who make them instead of lining the pockets of rent-seeking financiers thanks so much for the suggestion sebastian i think alex is already trying to get the author on next thursday's show and again for those of you who are interested that's the baffler article by rich woodall entitled mass hypnosis with a g in the middle there a new crop of investors would like you to keep vanilla ice on infinite repeat you can email us your suggestions guest suggestions topic ideas to chuck at this is hell.com and if we have your suggested guest or topic on the air we will thank you personally on air coming up fascism is on the rise in turkey and the west isn't doing a damn thing about it we'll also have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell what's the name of your podcast and announce this week's winner and we'll be telling you what's happening on next week's this is hell live from land stolen from the potawatomi people 
This is hell. The Turkish government of Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his AKP party, stunned by the success at the ballot box of the opposition, has been forced to make an alliance with the fascist party in order to have a majority control of seats in Turkey's parliament, the Grand National Assembly. But when opposition forces scored more stunning victories in mayoral elections, including the leftist pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, or HDP, the Erdogan government tried to overturn those elections. Now, as our guest will argue, they have taken the next step toward fascism by beginning the process of dissolving the leftist pro-Kurdish party. Returning to This Is Hell to get us all caught up on what is happening in Turkey, freelance journalist and translator Max Zerngast co-wrote the Jacobin article, Turkey is Trying to Ban the Socialist Pro-Kurdish HDP. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. Hi, thanks for having me, Jack. This is Max's seventh appearance on This Is Hell, dating back to 2016. Max was on the show most recently in October of 2019 to talk about his then-just-posted Jacobin article, Turkey's War in Syria is a War for Fascism. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Zirngast, that's Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. Let's not even go any farther than that last time you were on the show. The article was Turkey's war in Syria is a war for fascism. What role has Turkey's war in Syria played in elevating fascism within Turkey? Well, let me put it this way. Um, There's been a process of fascization, as we call it, um, throughout the last years. And Turkey's endeavors abroad, uh, such as the war in Syria, uh, as well as their uh, domestic politics, uh, have both played a role in this drive for fascization. So they are kind of uh, inseparable parts uh, of one uh, process, so to say. And you write that last week, Turkey's far-right regime launched a series of attacks on the opposition's right to organize, led by President Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, that's the AKP, and the Fascist Nationalist Movement Party, MHP, and other ultra-nationalist and fascistic elements within the state. This all-out war on oppositional forces makes up part of a broader fascization process, one that is increasingly suppressing any domestic space in Turkey all-out war on the opposition. What does the opposition offer or propose that Erdogan's AKP and what you describe as the fascist MHP does not? What do they so dislike about the pro-Turkish HDP that they would like it to just go away? Uh, Well, let me back up a little bit. Um, I mean, our argument is for years, and we wrote that in our Jacobin articles over the course of the last five or six years, that there is a hegemonic crisis in Turkey since 2013. And as a consequence of this crisis, which was triggered by um, the rise of the Kurdish movement, the rise and internalization of the uh, internationalization of the Kurdish movement, and uh, the popular uprising in Istanbul or starting uh, in Istanbul and then spreading throughout the country in June 2013. And as, a, as an answer to that, as a consequence of that, um, there have been major upheavals within the state. Um, the, the, the differences and the, the open conflict between different state factions broke up and, and new alliances have been formed. And the current alliance has been forged over this period of time, especially since since 2016, since the coup d'etat. But it was in the making even, or the attempted coup d'etat. But it was uh, in the making even before that. 
because the ruling AKP and President Erdogan, at the time he was, um, well, he was prime minister in 2013, in 2014 he became president, was in need um, of allies in order to carry out or to carry forward um, the state uh, as it was. And in order to do that, they applied an increasing, increasingly authoritarian um, regime and eventually a drive to fascism, which um, tries to change the state and the society. Um, and throughout the course, uh, there have been, throughout this course, there have been uh, free blocks, free large tendencies in society and politics that have been um, shaped throughout this process. Uh, the one is, as I said, the regime alliance, uh, which tries forward fascization. The other is the bourgeois opposition, which actually wants a restoration of the state and society in a, let's put it in parentheses, or let's put it in quotation marks, um, classic neoliberal way. You know, everything should function according to the laws of capital, and um, there should be a smooth ruling and a smooth functioning of the state apparatuses. Um, that's what they basically want. That's why we call them the restorationist uh, bloc, because they want to restore the order as it was a few years ago. And then there's the popular forces, uh, which stand as an opposition to actually both these uh, bourgeois blocs, and which cannot be integrated into the project uh, any of these two blocs have. Uh, and these popular dynamics are the Kurdish, uh, first and foremost, the Kurdish movement, the women's movement, um, other minority movements and the working class dynamics. Um, and it's precisely these popular forces that have been under attack last week. The Kurdish movement, that has been the, the withdrawal uh, of Turkey from the Istanbul Convention, which is an international agreement, um, which is important uh, in the struggle against violence against women. Um, and uh, this sees that there's the, at the same time, more than one popular dynamic is under attack. And that means actually that all of the popular dynamics are under attack. So um, what does the bourgeois opposition have to offer uh, other than the regime? Very little, actually. And that's the, one of the major problems. Uh, what do the popular forces want? Uh, they desire real freedom, real democracy, control over their lives, um, and the transformation of state and society. But that's what the other two factions or the other two tendencies want to suppress. They just want to do it by different means. Uh, while the fascist drive wants to crush them, uh, the restorationist bloc wants to somehow integrate them into their vision of state and society. Let's talk about that restorationist bloc uh, for a moment. You write uh, that Erdogan, AKP, and his alliance is also facing a bourgeois opposition that aims to take Turkish yes. state and society back to the situation that existed before the fascistic slide of recent years. What role do you think the bourgeois opposition may have played in that fascistic slide of recent years? Did they in any way tolerate, contribute to, encourage, or facilitate that slide? I mean, if I wanted to be blunt, I would say that um, the closest uh, aid to Erdogan throughout all these years was not any of his advisors uh, or his uh, one of the, his allies, but rather it was the, the leader of the main opposition party, the CHP. Uh, obviously not him as a person, but uh, what he represents, uh, the bourgeois opposition, that is. 
because without their stance, which was essentially always one that wanted to keep the popular forces from protesting in the streets, from um, working towards real change, um, always attempted to pacifizing those very popular forces, is precisely what allowed this fascistic slide to happen the way it happened. So uh, they played a huge role, I would say. And you also point out that the restorationist bloc mainly centers on oppositional parties. Like you said, the Republican People's Party, or CHP, the party with the second most seats in Erdogan's uh, uh, or in the government, uh, on, or the uh, good party, the IYI, and some new forces led by former leading officials from the AKP, like Erdogan's former prime minister and former economics minister. If former Erdogan officials are jumping ship to this restorationist bloc, what you call the bourgeois opposition, what does that reveal to you about that opposition, what it seems to be a landing place for Erdogan's former officials? Well, exactly. I mean, um, they, they have formed their own parties, uh, which tells us a lot of things. It tells us, first of all, that the increasing tribe for fascization uh, leaves even many of the former closest aides and the former officials in the uh, AKP and Erdogan governments uh, on the sidelines, actually, in some form of opposition. Um, we haven't named him because he doesn't have an official function, but the former president, um, the president throughout the first years for a long time, or since 2007, 2014, I think. Um, so when Erdogan was prime minister, he was president, Abdullah Gül, he's also in opposition to Erdogan, uh, and many others as well. And what the opposition does, instead of um, really strengthening popular demands, real democratic demands for a democratic republic, for a new democratic constitution, and all of that, uh, it tries... Uh, to imitate the regime in a slightly more liberal way. Uh, it tries to cozy up um, to the very traditions from which this regime has arisen. Um, just for example, I mean, I, obviously this is politics, but still, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a, an event uh, which commemorated uh, Nejmiddin Erbakan. Nejmiddin Erbakan was for many years the leader of the Islamic uh, political tradition in Turkey from which Erdogan arose. Uh, and the event was not by the government, not by the regime, but by the bourgeois opposition. Um, or another uh, event that happened, um, some G CHP leaders, so of the main uh, opposition party that is, uh, they visited the wife of the former, the founder and uh, long time uh, party leader of the MHP, the other uh, ally in the regime. So what they try to do is um, they try to cozy up to what to the to what the regime is doing, kind of try to imitate their politics. They want to appeal to the conservative and right wing and nationalist um, voters, so to say, instead of uh, strengthening the popular forces. I want to ask you a kind of a general question that's not just about Turkey. It, it's about Turkey, but it's about also the just the entire world and the fight against fascism. Why do you believe this centrist, if you will, bourgeois opposition cannot effectively challenge the Erdogan government or fascism? And in in as it is, you know, happening everywhere. Does does centrist is it centrist nationalism that undermines the ability their ability to challenge fascism? What is it about centrism 
that seems to end uh, bourgeois opposition that seems to fail to challenge or end fascism? It's a very good question, because when we talk about Turkey, uh, yes, I mean, we are specialists on Turkey, but very similar things happen around the world. Uh, there are unique elements, but uh, the general tendency is not unique to Turkey. So uh, I really like the question. And um, the thing is, um, what we see is that very often there is no structural opposition between that form of opposition or even at times they are in government, right? Like. Um, you could ask in the United States, what is the structural difference between a Joe Biden government and the Donald Trump government? Um, you know, whatever, or however we want to phrase it. Or in Europe, we have in, in, in many states in Europe, we have a rising right fascist authoritarian uh, front. And we have uh, centrist liberals um, who are not in uh, structural opposition. On the contrary, they form governments at times and they work together very well because they are not. Uh, opposed to the capitalist state. They are not opposed to capitalism, to capital strive for profit. Um, and very often their differences are more differences in style, in form, than there are differences in substance. And the same is, is going on in Turkey. Because essentially, if the main opposition parties, the two main opposition parties, which is the CHP uh, and the good party, the good party is a split from the MHP anyway. Uh, and the CHP has been the founding party of the state under, under Mustafa Kemal Atatürk uh, of the, the Turkish Republic and uh, is a representative of this very despotic uh, authoritarian state um, that just sees a, a transformation to even more fascization in recent years, but which is not, um, you know, this kind of drive to an authoritarian, despotic or even uh, fascist state. It, didn't came out of the blue. Uh, it was in the very foundations um, of the Republic. And on the very foundations, there was the CHP. So what they are actually, they are just, or just as the, the regime, they are representatives of this very state. The question is only, um, how can you govern the state in order to go forward? That is the main difference. But they do not want to change the tradition of the despotic state. They obviously do not want to do away with capitalism, uh, or they do not want to, stru uh, to strengthen workers' rights, uh, not even mildly. So uh, that is why they are not of any help in the anti-fascist struggle. On the contrary. If the restorationist bloc wants to return to what they think of as neoliberal stability, to what degree is neoliberalism in effect right now? Because often we think of neoliberalism and fascism going hand in hand. If neoliberalism isn't guiding decisions within the political economy right now, what is? I mean, I would say it is, obviously. I mean, there hasn't been any uh, structural change in economic policy. But um, what, what the main difference seems to be is uh, the current regime, they want to have a little piece of the pie in terms of geopolitics and in terms of financial politics, let's put it this way. So this is why we have these endeavors in neighboring states. Um, some You could call it regional or sub-imperialist endeavors, um, or you, know, you can just speak about um, kind of regional influence, increasing regional influence. Um, in any case, they obviously have to dance uh, with larger 
international powers, uh, and that's especially the United States, uh, the European Union, and Russia. And they try to maneuver between this, uh, these different forces in order to kind of you know, get a little piece for themselves. Uh, and on the other hand, in terms of financial or economic politics, um, they are in a real dilemma because the Turkish accumulation model, which has been in place since the 1980s, neoliberalism has been brought to Turkey via a military coup, the, the big uh, devastating military coup from 1980. Um, and they just have been the best at the current regime, that is, at the best at um, employing neoliberal politics, at least in the earlier phase of the AKB governments. Um, there have been huge uh, waves of privatization of public property, state enterprises and the like. And one of the main goals was to dismantle uh, the state bureaucracy. And that's why they had the support of the European Union, uh, the United States, and of Turkish capital, actually. Uh, because they wanted to do away with this crusty bureaucracy and um, get a more flexible uh, state and administration, so to say, which is exactly what uh, neoliberals always dream of, right? And in recent years, uh, what they had to do because of this, this modeling crisis uh, was the following. In order to kind of sustain the livelihood of small and medium enterprises, which are very important in Turkey, really very important um, for Turkish society, Turkish economy, but especially also as a voter base for centrist and right-wing parties. And, and they would be crushed uh, under the drive of capital for monopolization. So they had to be protected with cheap credits and other measures to support them. In order to do that, uh, the Turkish regime had to intervene to some extent um, into money politics and financial politics. And they had to keep interest rates low and the like. Uh, the negative effect of this was that the Turkish lira massively lost in value um, versus the dollar or the euro, whatever, uh, which also meant that state reserves uh, of the central bank uh, eroded, disappeared almost at times. Uh, so they are in this constant struggle that they had have to um, face the pressure of international capital. Uh, at the same time, they have to keep alive the small and medium enterprises. And this is the difficulty they are facing. And this is why we have seen uh, the second change at the, the central bank uh, within four months. Because uh, in the same night that they issued the degree that they would withdraw from the Istanbul Convention, they also issued a, a presidential degree that the, the head of the central bank would be replaced by someone else. Uh, but only in November, um, the head of the center, the, the former head uh, of the central bank had to be had been replaced. And uh, in a stunning move, one one or two days after that change, um, the minister of finance at the time uh, resigned via Instagram, and he has basically disappeared. He hasn't had any public appearance ever since. But which is more importantly, in more important than that, is that, that at that time the minister of finance was none other than Erdogan's son-in-law. So this was a, a really stunning move where they had to make a change in economic policy. And now, because of small medium enterprises increasingly getting under pressure again, 
because of economic troubles, because of the pandemic, uh, they made, made this change in order uh, to move forward. And it works uh, to some extent. And they have been carrying this out for four years. I mean, not only in the realm of economic financial policy, also in foreign policy, domestic policies. We all know that. I mean, we have been uh, following that and analyzing that um, development of the course of the last years. But the question is, how long can this go on that way? And what will be the cost? Because there is a cost, obviously. The central bank governor who was fired or whatever, dismissed uh, Naji Abel, he was somebody who was in court, uh, very strict neoliberal. You write yes. how when uh, Abel was appointed central bank governor only last November, was seen as part of a wider economic policy overhaul, prompting Treasury Secretary Barat Albiric, who, like you were saying, is also Erdogan's son-in-law, to resign via Instagram. Albiric has sought to repoliticize monetary policy as part of a general post-neoliberal expansionist economic policy aimed at pushing domestic demand at all costs and pushing back against the interests of international financial capital. But the result was that after 2018, as you were saying, the Turkish lira suffered a historic fall against the U.S. dollar and the euro, leading to an interleaked chain of currency, inflation, and foreign debt crises. As the situation became untenable, economic and monetary policy flipped back toward a strictly neoliberal course that reversed the credit bonanza and low interest rates after Abel was appointed and Albiric replaced. But this change was bound to be temporary. Did Abel's strict neoliberalism stabilize Turkey's economy, addressing the currency, inflation, and foreign debt crises? And if so, why change back? Well, he did in to some extent. I mean, if you follow a strict mainstream uh, view, um, his appointment was made uh, under the premise of reform. And we all know what reform means in mainstream terminology. It means uh, doing what international capital wants you to do, right? So uh, that was the premise. And they also wanted to strengthen the so-called independence of the central bank, so free it from political intervention. And that's why he was appointed, or that was his mission, so to say. At least it was his mission um, as presented to the outside. We don't obviously don't know what they really had uh, in plan. And to some extent, it worked because the value of the lira rose again. Um, let's say trust of international investors uh, increased and all of that. We know all how this works. Uh, and now we have seen the contrary. Uh, just in the recent days, the lira lost like 10, 15% of its value um, to the dollar. And, and international trust or trust of international investors um, has been falling. There has been a withdrawal of capital from Turkish banks and all the like. So um, we have to see where this is going. It's obviously a very risky move, but um, the move is not only about economic policy. That's, that's very clear. It's about this whole process of fascization um, and especially about domestic policy, small and medium enterprises, the economic crises, uh, the massive inflation, more and more people being out of work, more and more pe people struggling to get by, I mean, which is something that despite economic troubles, um, people in Turkey somehow got by most of the time, but more and more we're seeing that people are saying they're actually hungry, starving. Uh, we have seen a rise in um, suicides because of economic trouble, because of massive debt, because of um, you know people's loss of any um, 
positive perspective for the future and the like. Uh, and also we have seen, which is very crucial, uh, only in the last months, uh, there have been massive strikes and protests by workers in many sectors. The mining sector, um, uh, logistics sector, but also communal workers in Istanbul or in Izmir and other cities, other major cities. So uh, we're seeing that more and more uh, trouble uh, is taking place, especially in the realm of economics. You know, the, the thing I don't understand, Max, is that the, the leaving of the international fight against domestic violence, particularly against uh, violence against women and children, I understand why, the, why Erdogan's party would want to take control over Jezi Parki, because that's where historic protests have happened by the left. I can understand why they would want to uh, remove a parliamentary uh, member who is somebody who's from the opposition. I can understand, as a fascistic strategy, I understand that. I can understand the fascistic strategy of wanting to dissolve the opposition. I, the one thing I just don't understand is what is the point? What am I missing here when it comes to Turkey leaving the international fight against domestic violence? How does that tie into all of those other moves? Uh, well, I mean, I think there's um, we need to give, give a complex answer to this. First of all, uh, what we have seen uh, throughout history that the right wing, authoritarians, fascists especially, they all had... Uh, maybe regionally different or historically different, but they all have a very specific view of what women's place in society is. And it's a very reactionary conservative view. And the other thing is um, that one of the most important and strongest popular dynamics, especially throughout recent years in Turkey, has been the women's movement and also the LGBTQ movement. Uh, and uh, LGBTQ people have been under massive attack in recent months as well. Uh, and especially in justifying this withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention, uh, they kind of focused on the LGBT aspect uh, of it, where they said, like, um, there's um, things in this convention that are run counter to our traditions and our accustomed practices and all that. What they mean is very clear by that. Um, so this is an attack uh, on a very strong popular dynamic. It's not just an attack on, or what they do, what they're not trying to do is they, they don't want to say like, um, because they can't, we don't want to fight violence against women. Obviously they cannot do that. So they kind of presented in a way like, we don't need an international agreement to do that. Uh, our own laws, our own traditions um, are enough for that. Uh, but they also talk a lot about family values. So it's very specific uh, understanding, as I said, of the place um, of the women in, of women in society. Um, that's the one aspect. The other aspect is, or the next aspect is, so to say, that they wanted an all-out attack on oppositional forces, especially on the popular forces, um, because they want to push forward with their try for fascization because they cannot take step backs anymore. They cannot take anything back. And we have seen the same, but the very same thing with the, uh, the transformation of the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul from a museum into a mosque. You know, it's a very important historic place. 
Uh, it's been a, a church, a mosque, a museum, uh, and now it's a mosque again. And the Turkish right, especially the Islamic right, the religious right, has uh, used the cause of the Hagia Sophia for years. They said they want to transform it back into a mosque. For years, this was a, a rally call, but it never realized. It never actually happened. But we see that they have run out of causes to use. So they create these kind of causes in their tribe forward. Uh, they transformed the Hagia Sophia into a mosque. And since, uh, well, for years, but especially for the last year or so, the Istanbul Convention has been constantly discussed, the withdrawal, uh, supposed withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention, um, has been constantly discussed, uh, constantly made a topic by the Turkish right. Uh, and eventually they had to do it. Uh, otherwise, I think in their understanding, that would show weakness. So if they, they make these kind of promises, especially to their right-wing reactionary uh, fascist core uh, that they want to consolidate, uh, they eventually have to realize those promises. Uh, and it seems that especially after uh, the partial uh, electoral loss in 2019 in the um, the local elections, communal elections, they really do not bank on elections anymore. What they want is they want the state under control, which they have more or less, uh, and they want to consolidate a fascist core. Uh, and they do not want to generate a majority of over 50%. I mean, if it comes, fine, then it works. But that does not seem to be the prime uh, goal any longer, because we have seen in recent months, especially, that in all polls, uh, the AKP and the MHP, that is the regime alliance, has massively lost support in the population. Um, they are down to probably below 40, 40 35% of the vote. It's very difficult to tell because uh, polls are uh, not very re reliable in Turkey. But uh, what is very clear, the tendency is clear, that they're actually losing uh, support. Uh, so that is their way of moving forward, their way of remaining in power. Um, and uh, we will see how it goes. But the main uh, objective doesn't seem to be to make an election or anything anytime soon. Do you think that that changing support, that uh, greater popularity for groups like the HDP, the pro-Kurdish Democratic Party, do you think that that might mean that there are shifting attitudes throughout Turkey, maybe even within the restorative bloc, the bourgeois opposition, changing attitudes towards the Kurdish people after all of these years of criminalizing, demonizing, and brutalizing the Kurdish population? Well, the, the anti-Kurdish card is always the strongest card of the Turkish right, because as, as we also discussed before, uh, large parts of the, the bourgeois opposition are actually nationalist, uh, very nationalist, that is, and anti-Kurdish. Uh, so that is a, a card uh, that can always be played. Uh, the problem is, is that the Kurdish movement, not just the HDP, the, the parliamentary uh, legal party, that is, obviously there's more aspects to the Kurdish movement, um, has been on the rise at the same time under massive pressure. I mean, uh, we know that uh, the state, the regime, they want uh, to split the HDP, obviously. Um, they want to strengthen, strengthen more liberal forces within 
the HDB, which they have been partially successful at. Um, and they want to force the HDB uh, to either integrate themselves completely in the restorationist block or be dissolved. Um, and, and thus constantly wearing them down, so to say. Um, they have been partially successful at that. And the thing is, we have been through, I think, at least seven party closures, closures of seven Kurdish parties. That is, there have been other parties which have been closed, shut down, uh, dissolved as well. But uh, seven Kurdish parties, Kurdish dominated parties since the 1990s, and uh, the last in 2009. And um, there has always been a new party uh, at start that was uh, immediately after the one party had been dissolved, the new party was uh, had been formed before, but was then strengthened and was right there uh, to continue the political work. Um, it might be the very same thing now, I'm not sure. But the thing is, uh, the state that we are facing now is a very different state. And it might not be as easy. That's a serious blow. But that doesn't mean uh, it's not closed down yet, by the way. It's just the initiation of a, of, of, uh, of a process. Uh, and it might not end in a closure and dissolution of the party. Um, there's other measures that can be taken, or there might be no measures at all. Like they can be cut off from financial assistance from the state or things like that. Um, so we have to see how it goes. It depends on the reaction um, throughout society, I would say. Um, but the thing is, the Kurdish struggle is more than just the HDP, and it's more than just Turkey, because we have a Kurdish population in four um, major states in the region, in Syria, in Iraq, and in Iran. Uh, and especially in Iraq and Syria, there's a lot of activity. And Turkey itself is active militarily in Syria and in Iraq as well against uh, Kurdish forces there. There's this dismissiveness of culture wars that I, I have to admit that I have actually embraced as well, even though I don't do understand the importance of them. At times, I'm a little bit dismissive of them. You were mentioning how this fascization of uh, Turkey seems to be taking place within discussions around family values, uh, about the Hagia Sophia. How dependent is the rise of fascism on culture wars? Are, are culture wars a lot more important to the right because that is how fascism works? Well, I mean, I don't think you will have a, a fascist party or a fascist regime that embraces uh, values of personal freedom and um, free cultural development. Um, so, I mean, that goes hand in hand in a way, because that is one of the specifics of an authoritarian or fascist regime that they want to structure the whole of the state and society according to their own uh, will. Um, and obviously, uh, and we have argued against this uh, from the very beginning of our uh, collective writing, um, there is a way of reading Turkey just in terms of um, a cultural framework, that is of um, religious uh, right, Islamic conservative right, and um, secular uh, left, which defends laicism and, and stuff like that. Uh, and that is fundamentally wrong. 
And we, what we tried is we tried to integrate our others as well, not, not just us, class aspect in this. Another uh, factors of, um, of social analyses, but we have to see that very often uh, there is a close interconnection between a class aspect and, and a, aspects such as ethnic or religious identities uh, in Turkey, because um, the majority of the working class uh, is uh, Alawites or it's Alevis, that is, uh, or it's Kurdish. And now in recent years, um, there's a lot of um, refugees from Syria who work especially in the most uh, unsecure and poorly paid jobs in construction and, and, and factories and other, other uh, jobs as well. And um, what we have in Turkey is that in many sectors, there's actually a constant risk of life because there's every day there are workers dying at work on the working place. Uh, in, recent, in recent months with the pandemic, of course, there's this... Um, uh, how do you call it, that you have a delivery uh, by by bike or other way, um, motorbikes mostly in Turkey, uh, delivery of food and packages and all that. Um, and every day, uh, some guy working as a delivery, uh, yeah, as in this delivery uh, industry, delivery services, dies because they have to go very fast and um, they constantly have accidents. Uh, the next thing is that we have, statistically speaking, um, the murder of a woman in Turkey every day, murdered by her husband, her boyfriend, or very often another close family member, male family member. Um, more than one a day, actually. It's up to 400 or so a year. So this is also why the, this Istanbul Convention is so important. It's a product of the struggle of the women's movement. Um, and that's what's taken back. The HDB is a product of the Kurdish struggle, which is going on for 40 years. So it's not just, yeah, you can close a parliamentary party and the, the struggle will go on. Obviously, the women's struggle would go on without the Istanbul Convention. But these are uh, rights or these are um, institutions, uh, laws that have been gained by struggle itself, popular struggle itself. And now it's taken back. That's what fascism actually tries to achieve there. It tries to daze back uh, the gains of social struggle. Um, and that is why it articulates itself in these different ways. It's not just, um, obviously, it's a, it's, it tries to suppress workers. It tries uh, to implement a very um, oppressive, authoritarian, neoliberal um, working regime. Uh, but it also... Uh, attacks in, in all aspects of society. Uh, and that is why resistance also pops up in all aspects of society. You write that an exclusive news report by Reuters on March 18th made public that due to pressure applied by U.S. President Joe Biden and German Chancellor Angela Merkel, the EU will not declare any further sanctions on Turkey in its upcoming summit on March 25th through 26th 
adding that a demand by a Turkish prosecutor to ban the pro-Kurdish HDP party is unlikely to revive any talk of sanctions. The report further states that Turkey's recent moves to recalibrate its foreign policies with its Western allies motivated Biden to press Brussels, while Merkel favored an approach that prioritizes EU investment in Turkey. Does the West then, does it prioritize a nation being pro-neoliberal more than it prioritizes it being anti-fascist? And to what degree does neoliberalism lead to fascism? I mean, I think the the European Union and especially Germany and France and the United States, on the other hand, they have very real concrete interests in Turkey. The one thing is, as you know, there has been this maneuvering of Turkey between Russia and the United States, and they have they have bought those S-400 uh, defense missiles from Russia. And obviously, uh, the United States wants them um, to give them back or decline kind of remove these missiles and this missile system because it fears that information of other NATO uh, weapon systems will go to Russia. And also, obviously, this is a larger, the larger question of the role and the place of Turkey in the current realignment of geopolitics, because that's what we've been seeing throughout the last years or decades even, that we have been, uh, we've seen a uh, relative decline of the West and of the United States, United States imperialism. And on the other hand, we have seen a relative rise of especially China and Russia. Uh, and countries like Turkey, uh, they kind of find themselves in, in the middle, in the mix somewhere, because they see an opening. They are strong enough that they can, um, at the same time, sit on a table with Russia or China uh, and the European Union and, uh, and the US. Um, but they are not strong enough to be really dominant force on themselves, even though that's what their, you know, ideologues, especially on the right, they constantly say that Turkey has been one of the major players uh, worldwide, uh, which is an exaggeration, obviously. Uh, it's an illusion. Um, on the other hand, uh, especially what, what is the European Union wants, especially, is they uh, want to renew and keep up the deal um, on Turkey preventing refugees uh, from Syria, but also from other parts of the world, Afghanistan and the like, Pakistan. They want to prevent them from coming to Europe, to Europe and other things again. But these are kind of the most pressing issues that we can see. And that is why they are cozying up uh, to Turkey. And I don't think they have any trouble. Actually, this openly said that even a, a dissolution, closure of the HDP wouldn't change their stance. And um, I don't think the, the withdrawal from the Istanbul Convention uh, would do anything to change their stance. I mean, obviously, they are uh, talking about being worried about those developments and all that. But at the same time, I, today, there is a, um, yeah, the leaders of, of, of European Union countries are meeting, actually, the, the, the prime ministers and all that. And also, I think President Biden will be <clears throat> um, kind of guest at that. Um, convention. And they will also be discussing Turkey. And what Merkel said just today was that she's actually very hopeful that there will be positive developments on human rights and similar issues in Turkey. I mean, that's just a joke, obviously. If you, uh, and you don't have to be a Marxist or leftist to see that this is a joke. You just need to be an honest liberal. Um, so very clearly, uh, they don't care much about that. The only thing they might care about um, 
is Turkey's respective uh, central bank policy, um, financial policy. That they might care about a little bit. But the other issues, I don't think they they give a damn to be to be very open about it, but which is very interesting. Not that it's new. I mean, the people on the left have been saying these things for four years, obviously. But in just recent week, um, when all these things happened and the European Union and the United States did not only remain silent, they actually seemed to give support um, to the Turkish regime, a series of well-known um, pro-Western liberal commentators in Turkey uh, wrote very similar articles saying that uh, we shouldn't have any hopes in the West helping, we as uh, people in Turkey, uh, any hopes in the West helping us in the struggle for democracy. And the struggle for democracy can only come from Turkey itself, uh, which is very telling. If even very pro-Western liberals who actually do not want anything more than a society as in Western Europe, um, when even they are saying that, you know, the West won't help Turkey, the people in Turkey, um, it's quite telling. Yes, and it's kind of more evidence that the so-called democratic West is more supportive of neoliberalism than democracy, which is very disturbing. We've been speaking with freelance journalist and translator Max Zerngas, who co-wrote the Jacobin article, Turkey is trying to ban the socialist pro-Kurdish HDP, which he co-authored with Alpkaiser Ili Olyu and Juni Okara. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Zerngast, Z-I-R-N-G-A-S-T. This is Max's seventh appearance here on This Is Hell. You can search on his name at thisishell.com and see find all of our interviews with Max. So uh, one last question for you, Max. And as you know, the final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, <laughs> or I think our audience is going to hate your response to this one. You write of Joe Biden and Angela Merkel putting pressure on the EU to not impose further sanctions on Turkey due to its most recent crackdown on the opposition, including an attempt to make an opposition party illegal. Erdogan and his allies clearly took this for a green light to press on with their domestic purge, despite the risks that still remain. The EU and the United States seem to be willing to come to terms with Turkey's fascization process as long as it remains a key member of NATO. So, Max, does this open the door? Does this signal to other far-right-wing fascistic groups and governments in NATO and even the EU to further pursue fascism as the Biden and Merkel administration seem to tolerate fascism as long as you're neoliberal? Sure. I mean, uh, I think we have seen um, fascization, uh, increasingly more authoritarian neoliberalism, as um, an attempt to solve the current crises political crises, hegemonic crises, economic crises from the right. And we have seen it across the world, from Brazil to, to India, to Turkey, to the United States, to Europe, obviously. And, well, the only force standing against it are the popular dynamics all across the world. It's the workers, uh, the women, the youth, um, indigenous people, um, and other oppressed minorities that are standing against this strife. Max, it's always a pleasure. You know we're going to be bothering you in the future to come back on the show. Go sure. to our website. This I'm is, looking forward to it. <laughs> go to our website, thisisell.com, search on Max's last name and find all of our interviews. Thanks so much, and uh, take care. It's great to hear your voice again, sir. You too. Thanks so much for having me. 
Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind our listeners what this week's question from hell is and supply us with some of their answers. This week's question from hell is, uh, so, what's the name of your podcast? What's the name of your podcast? You want me to get all of them now since uh, no Jeffy? Yeah. Uh, Bradley R. says, stuff you should know. That you have little to no control over. <laughs> this is great background music, though, for the pot. <laughs> no, this uh, answered the question from Al. Justin P. says, Big Dumb Dummies, which it turns out was a failed attempt at humility and maybe a bit too apt of an appellation for my liking. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to close this Zoom meeting <laughs> and meeting for all. Okay, there we go. Uh, now, via Twitter, email, DM, etc., 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 what is the name of your podcast? Flying Needle says, Shut up, a-hole. Adam B., <laughs> Not Chuck, not Alex. Adam B. writes, the Ho Chi Minstrel Show. Mm. Neil C. says, how to start your own podcast. Mm. Rock Taster says, rudimentary Petri. What is the name of your podcast? What's the name of your podcast? Old Pal Eat Fart 69 says, this is Mel, the show that your sharp-toothed feral beast turned bar cat Mel discusses who's been spraying who, how to dodge flying boots in the alleyway, best mice digs around the neighborhood, and which bar patron gives the most affection. <laughs> so who wrote that? Uh, our old friend Eat Fart 69. <laughs> That's a good one. And then finally, uh, lastly, Hypocrite Reader says, not a podcast per se, but I preemptively registered every combination of Obama and Springsteen's names I could think of so they'd have to pay me to get their show off the ground. <laughs> this is Mel sounds really good. That might be the first uh, podcast I actually subscribe to. That's, that sounds really, really good. Uh, the answers I liked the most were, well, this is Mel. That's fantastic. Uh, Ronaldo saying boring personal anecdotes and vocal fry, which I really liked, but Ronaldo is a staff member here on This Is Hell. So sorry, Ronaldo, you can't win. Mark C. saying, The full frontal lobotomy podcast exploring mindless subjects in mind-numbing detail, good for the whole family. To which Jeff G. replied, Did you see this, Alex? My lobotomy was neither full, my clinicians regret this, nor frontal. The surgeon had dreadful aim, so I don't think I'd qualify. (laughs) That's disturbing. Uh, Aaron D. saying, No notes and nervous laughter. Jack Block saying, no fun, a podcast where I interview people on the street about the Stooges, but that's just because the Stooges recorded their albums like eight blocks from my house where I grew up. Uh, Philip A. saying, welcome to hell, airs Saturdays from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. with your curmudgeonly pockmarked host, Charles Mraz. Each week, welcome to hell, and he goes on and goes on and goes on about Jess Dorfman, who will blow your mind, and you get it. Mark O.G. saying, Everything's Getting Better, a podcast that discusses world news, quoting mainstream sources, makes uniformed conclusions, and makes constant unnecessary pop culture references conducted by an entitled but down-to-earth rich man, a self-proclaimed influencer, and an unknown comedian. Zach N. saying any group of three or more white people speaking. Alex, do you have any that you really enjoyed? Yeah, my favorite was uh, Braden S's Same Shit Every Day. I know. I'll, I did, I'll defer to you on this No, one. I really like that one, too, and I was thinking about adding that to the group, but uh, Jesus. Huh. That was a really good one. Uh, yeah, let's go with that one. Braden S., you are the winner of this week's question from hell, and what was his answer again, Alex? Same Shit Every Day. <laughs> That's a good name for podcast my answer to this week's question from hell so what's the name of your podcast the name of my podcast is this is hell but i do have another podcast 
It's an internal podcast that's always playing in my head. And it's far gloomier, more depressing, distressing, discouraging, disheartening, dispiriting, dismal, and disturbing than even this show. Oddly, the name of that podcast is also This Is Hell. The only difference is there's a lot more sports. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is if you are going to try the hair of the dog that bit you as a hangover cure, then use vodka. Thanks to this week's guests, including Brian Meir, whose most recent writing includes his Brazil Wire article, Lavo Jado Dies, Lula is Reborn, behind the Supreme Court ruling. You can follow Brian on Twitter at Brian M. Telesur. Brian is a co-editor of Brazil Wire, Brazil correspondent for Telesur's English, Telesur English's news program from the South and co-host on Brazil 24-7. Also, thanks to urban policy and planning scholar Karina Moreno, who wrote the Jacobin article, Biden's immigration reform doesn't do enough to help migrant workers, which was not the original headline of that story, and I'll be talking about that on Patreon tomorrow. Thanks to yesterday's guests, Jonathan Ellis and Brian Bean, who co-wrote the RampantMag.com article, Rebuilding the Anti-Imperialist Movement in a New Era, which you can find at RampantMag.com. And thanks to today's guest, Max Zerngast. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Zerngast. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when we will be playing our April Fool's Day 2006 conversation with sociologist Michael Schwartz on how poorly the U.S. media was covering the war on Iraq and how misguided their analysis was on the war. I mean, how else can you justify a misguided war than using completely misguided logic? And it's another This Week in Hell when I give you what I got out of This Week's Hell, which I can guarantee you is not what you got out of This Week's This Is Hell, but you can only hear that tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, where it will be posted shortly after the live stream. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon. Thanks to Max, Victor, Mariamu, and Jonathan. There is only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. Hey, podcast listeners, tune in for a special hand-picked episode of The Moment of Truth from Jeff. Okay, bye. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. is dishonorable or to be honored by a dishonorable society is no honor I don't know the exact wording nor do I know who spoke this quotation it was a Taoist philosopher I think I tried to look it up and I found something that looked promising but it turned out to be a quotation from me it was from a short story I'd written published in an anthology alongside some authors you might have heard of. I don't know, Terry Southern? Andre Kudrescu? Well, it doesn't matter. They're important authors in their own way, and I'm honored to be in their company. 
even if they would have had nothing to do with me in real life. To receive honors given by a disreputable society is no honor. Or being given an honor by a society without honor is dishonorable. I don't know. It's tricky. It risks being a circular thing. To be honored by the dishonorable is dishonorable. Well, duh. It's no honor to be honored by those without honor. Conversely, though, to be shunned by a dishonorable society is no disgrace. To be snubbed by a bunch of jerks is a compliment. I want to tell you about an actor who was snubbed. And by snubbed, I mean ignored. Not ignored or snubbed, really, because both imply that the snubber or ignorer knows the object of their inattention exists. Thus, there are no Oscar snubs. It's nothing personal. If there's a film that follows the life of a leftist, nonviolent black leader and does so without filtering the story through the lens of a white character played by Willem Dafoe or some such person, and a cabal of old white people ignores it, it's not a conscious dismissal. It's an unconscious dismissal. But if we're going to call the blindness of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences a form of snubbing, then what they did to Ray Walston throughout his life is a snub. Ray Walston, my favorite actor, was a slender white man. His most recognizable roles were Luther in South Pacific, Sean Penn's nemesis Mr. Hand in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Poop Deck Pappy in Robert Altman's Popeye movie. But I first knew him as Uncle Martin on the CBS TV show My Favorite Martian, 1963 to 66, in which he played opposite Bill Bixby. Bill Bixby played a reporter. And Ray Walston played Uncle Martin, an extraterrestrial who had crash-landed in Bill's backyard. Of course, they agreed that he would remain a guest of Bill Bixby, concealing his unearthly nature, thereby creating any number of comical misunderstandings until such time as either Uncle Martin repaired his flying saucer or the other Martians came to rescue him or the show was canceled. Ray Walston was a magnificent performer, magnificent as the super-intelligent, telekinetic Uncle Martin, or exiguous twelve-and-a-half. He was very calm, like David Carradine in Kung Fu. I think David Carradine might even have studied Ray Walston's performance when preparing to play the part of Shaolin monk Kwai Chang Kane. Of course, no one gets an Oscar for a TV show. Nevertheless, Ray Walston didn't receive one. Ray Walston was a supporting actor in Billy Wilder's The Apartment. He played one of four office managers who used Jack Lemmon's apartment for romantic trysts until Fred McMurray, as their boss, commandeered the apartment for himself and his chippy, Shirley MacLaine. Nowadays, best supporting actor is given to the guy with the second biggest role in a movie because he's not quite as well-known or good-looking as the male lead, but back in 1960, a character actor could be nominated. Nevertheless, Walston wasn't nominated for his role in The Apartment. Jack Crucian was. He played Dr. Dreyfus, Jack Lemmon's neighbor, and he was good. The Academy snubbed Walston that year, and never again would he appear in a film that would bring him anywhere close to an Oscar. 
though his face lent itself to glowering characters, Ray Walston was a joyous performer. Even as the crapulous Luther in South Pacific, his joy comes through. You can see the enthusiasm of a high school musical theater participant in his every gesture. We got sunlight on the sand. We got moonlight on the sea. We got mangoes and bananas you can pick right off a tree. So what I'm doing is, I'm making a kind of sawing motion. I've got a fist, and I've got my elbow bent at 90 degrees there, and I'm making a sawing motion across my midriff because that is the gesture indicating enthusiasm. Would his career have been any different had he been nominated for an Oscar in 1960? Would it have been any different if he'd won? I don't think so. And I don't think he would have enjoyed his career any more had he been able to look at that statuette sitting on his mantle. Or what is a statuette? It's a small statue. I've never won one. Do I feel snubbed? Sure. I have my Oscar speech prepared, but they'll never hear it. They don't deserve to hear it. You, listeners, this is hell. You can hear it. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the Academy, I think it was some Taoist scholar who said that to be honored in a corrupt society is a disgrace. And tonight is the greatest disgrace of my life. When Kevin Spacey won his Oscar for American Beauty, he dedicated his award to Jack Lemmon, whose performance in the apartment this Academy chose to snub. And so snubbing, you honored him. Well, tonight I accept this disgrace on behalf of Ray Walston, who never got to endure the dishonor of winning this honor. And on behalf of the cast and crew of Selma and all the other worthy endeavors whose worthiness this Academy highlights by ignoring. Shame on you. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Oh, Jeffy, Jeffy, Jeffy. Hey, I got to tell you something. So I went to this uh, Aldermanic tell Forum. Me something, tell me something, Chuck. I went By to this- the way, I was, I, when I was in Hyderabad, I stayed in high-tech city. Oh, did you? How is it? Yes, I did. Uh, it's not really run all that well, to be honest with you. There's some sort of filthy pond full of sewage and garbage that every, every day at 4.30, a breeze blows across all the verandas in the neighborhood and stinks like unbelievable yeah that's exactly how she kind of described it too that it, things don't work very well that it's kind of just disgusting that they fall apart in a very quick uh short period of time so check this out so i go to this aldermanic wait, wait i'm sorry go ahead you know, you know what they call that in india what's that business as usual yeah so <laughs> so i go to this uh aldermanic forum this week and it was Pretty entertaining. They were saying how, you know, the concerns in the neighborhood are like safety and that kind of stuff. And uh, one uh, candidate would talk and then the other one would talk. And one of them said that, you know, what we can do to save the neighborhood is have more festivals and 5Ks. I think there's going to be some sort of forced running of five kilometers in the future (laughs) under his rule. I'm really not too sure what that's about. But the really hilarious thing about this entire thing was, first of all, that this uh, so Deborah Silverstein is Jewish and she is uh, you know the and the Chamber of Commerce in the area is the Westridge Chamber of Commerce, 
uh, her opponent who was there, she, he's not her only opponent, but the person who was there showed up for the forum, Shejan uh, Kariakos. He is Muslim. There was just a divide within the Westridge Chamber of Commerce. So now there's a Westridge Chamber of Commerce and a South Asian Chamber of Commerce because South Asians believe that they were not being represented within the regular Chamber of Commerce. So there's this major split within, you know, kind of ward politics and stuff. And at no point does ev- anybody ever suggest you know, maybe it's a problem that we have two different chambers of commerce and that these people don't seem to be getting along very well. And then Deborah Silverstein even goes on to say, you know, it's so great. I just wish the rest of the world could get along like the different religions get along here in the 50th Ward, which they clearly do not. That's clearly not what's happening. But the best part, Jeff, was every time you would go over your one-minute time limit, they didn't tell you the sound that they were going to make. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere... Sitting there with Pete Velavanis from Carrie's Lounge, out of nowhere we hear this clanking of a bell, and Pete turns and goes, "Is there a goat in here?" <laughs> we thought that a goat had come running wild into that. We had no idea what this bell was. No, nor did anybody else, except for the person who was ringing it. It was the timer bell. It was hilarious. It was very entertaining. Wow, was it an electronic noise or was it an actual goat bell? It was bell? an actual goat bell. I am telling you, it was wow. like clank, 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 clank. Like I thought that a cow had just walked in. I had no idea of what was going on. Well, on the subject of safety, Chuck. Yes, sir. I'm a slut for safety. <laughs> I'm gay for safety. <laughs> well, we should figure out some way to bridge that gap. <laughs> All right, I got to let you go because sports is coming on in a couple of minutes. All right, keep that gap clean as a whistle. All right, thank you.